welcome back to hey great shot you are now listening to part two of our conversation with ben rothenberg of the new york times where we break down our favorite next gen atp prospects on tours now it wouldn't be a great shot podcast if it wasn't you know two hours long so of course we had to divide it into two parts in part one ben and i talk a little bit about andy murray and then we discuss the criteria we used in breaking down these next gen players into tiers in part one you'll find tier one which is our the players we think are going to be the superstars on tour as well as tier two which we view as the marin chilich area of guys who are certainly going to be competing but may not be as memorable as say the big four are uh in this part of the podcast we will be talking about our tier three guys those are guys we think are going to be in the top 25 top 50 for the long period of time we also talk about some of the guys we didn't have on our list but we think could make breakthroughs uh in 2019 as well as later on into the future i will ask if you haven't already please subscribe to this podcast as well as our other podcast the cracked interviews pod you know rate review talk to us because we want to know what do you guys think about these pods are there other types of guests you think we should be bringing on are there aspects of the tennis world we're not talking about enough that you would like to hear please we want to hear from you the listener again if you missed anything from the end of the tennis season go check out our website as well crackedrackets.com we've got a ton of great top content for you there including our exclusive coverage of the top-notch wildcard series event in indianapolis where felix corwin took home a qualifying wildcard into the cleveland challenger event he will have the opportunity to play as well as with the winners of the top-notch series events in cleveland cincinnati and kansas city He'll have the chance to compete with them in a four-player draw for a main draw wild card. So we will be keeping you updated on that series moving forward. And if you want to learn anything about our champion, Felix, about any of the other players that compete in that event, again, go check out our website, CrackedRackets.com. But with that being said, getting into Tier 3, and you know we want to be conscious of your time, so I don't want to keep you here for no too worries. long. Um, but... You know, tier three, these are guys, perennial top 20 players. They'll win ATP 500, 250 titles, maybe even the occasional Masters title, make late runs into Grand Slams. But these are just guys who we don't project to have quite as high as an upside as those previous ones. For me, the number one player in this tier and the guy who might embody this the best, Daniil Medvedev, who I have number one in this tier because as much as I loved his end of year run, I just... I don't see the definitive weapon that carries him to a Grand Slam title. Yeah, I don't really see him as a slam winner either. I see him kind of as the ultimate spoiler um, and being someone who can beat almost anybody on this list on this day. I mean, he is early in their careers has owned Tsitsipas, who's somebody I think you know has a much bigger upside. Um, but Medvedev is good at getting on people's skin. He's good at disrupting matches. He's good at playing kind of funky shots. Um, I think that he, yeah, I don't see him being an alpha in the same way, but I think he absolutely can be someone in the mix and can be a top 10 player, kind of lower part of top 10 as an upside, I think, and, and could string it together. I mean, he's got an interesting game and again, depending on what slam draws look like, I wouldn't rule him out. He's probably my top tier three guy as well, but, uh, he's, yeah, doesn't quite have that sort of obvious steadiness it would take to be higher up. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I will say, having seen Medvedev play in first in person, though the forehand looks awful on video. I mean, it's really, it might be the ugliest shot on tour. The racket speed in person is very impressive. I mean, not a lot of holes in Medvedev's game other than the fact that it seems like everyone who's playing him hates him. But maybe mm. that's a strength for him. He goes 43-24 and 24 on the year, wins three titles, one in Sydney, one in Winston-Salem, one in Tokyo. Obviously, he pushed Federer twice at the end of the year pretty hard. He makes a Wimbledon in a U.S. Open third round. It's funny because before Paris, before uh, it wasn't Stockholm, it was Moscow, I believe. And I, I think he had you know three titles to catch Novs one, and you would make the argument, oh, maybe Medvedev had the better season. So I am a bit worried. Is he too low? Because he's another guy who's 6'6". I mean, the the serve isn't great now, but with that body, with his feel around the court, there's no reason his serve couldn't continue to improve. I I think based on your definitions, like I think he's sort of in between the tiers. I don't see him as being a top five potential guy or even necessarily a slam obvious contender, but I do think he's going to be better than 
what we think of as being a perennial top 20 or it's trying to think of who is in that category now like who like a Feliciano Lopez I guess kind of guy I think he's above that um but I don't know I I, I do think that he still doesn't have quite the huge upside he's this I, generation's I Richard yeah. Gasquet yeah maybe better than that though maybe even like a poor man's Burditch maybe but but not not at all stylistically i'm just thinking results wise although british was very steady at making it deep in a lot of big tournaments and they're just never really finishing it off maybe maybe edmund's gonna be, sorry maybe medvedev is gonna be that same exact way um but i don't know i mean on the antagonism thing you're right i mean he does really antagonize a lot of the other players and that can be good but it can also be exhausting i mean like if you're if every match you play comes with some sort of drama and this would fit into curios too if every match, you, if, if frequently you're getting into sort of dust dust with people and not having, not the curious that doesn't have friends in the locker room, but constantly sort of annoying people and just having to, you know, walk on eggshells around people and have, you know, bad blood, if that can take a lot out of you. I mean, that can be sapping at your workplace, as anybody who's in any kind of line of work can know. I mean, like having office drama it's not usually good for your work and 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 and, and medvedev is the office drama guy uh, of the generation as you say dalton and my relationship begs to differ we we are constantly <laughs> beefing and yet we've made it work um but yeah i, I yeah we we, th- we thrive on that kind of workplace here at correct right? <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and i i just think you know we've talked about how many guys now i had seven eight we talked about at least 10 guys maybe 12 and we haven't had a definitive villain until we've hit medvedev i mean curious you can make the argument that fans don't like him but i don't think he generates the sort of animosity from his opponent as a medvedev and i think in any generation to stand out there's got to be something different about you and to medvedev's credit that's what's different about him and it it certainly is, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to, he's not actually a terrible human. I, I don't know anything about him. If someone's marrying him at age 22, he must do something well. Um, but uh, I, that's not the data I would use, but I mean, that's <laughs> sure. Okay. I, I'm not saying he's a terrible person either, but he is, he does sort of stick out. And the other person I would say that sticks out as being separate from the pack here is Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas is just very much to his own drummer and not like a part of this sort of crew. In terms of the broness of it, I think at all, he's kind of just Are you on, his, on his own to island. His side photography career? Or? Absolutely, I'm alluding to that, and I'm alluding to just his, <laughs> gen- but his general sort of creative mind and just. I, I get the sense, and you, I, you probably saw the whole interaction I had with Curios at the U.S. Open, but like that was stemming from Curios being like, "What is this guy doing?" About Tsitsipas, and just being baffled by it. And I think that Tsitsipas is not a very, and this is not to his detriment. To me, he's he's kind of just this uniquely introverted on an island literal or figurative you know making videos person and just having a great time so far by himself and and that could be good and that can keep him away from the fray and everything or it could be uh isolating i don't know but he's the other guy who i think really sort of he's not a traditional villain per se i mean i think he's gonna be much has much more appeal to crowds in terms of his charisma than medvedev would but um in terms of the one who the other people sort of look at and say, yeah, we're not, you know, might might just draw reactions out of them. I think Tsitsipas is a guy who could do that. I mean, Zverev, is certain, Zverev certainly did in Canada. Would you, like, who would you compare his personality to? Is Nadal similar to that? No, I don't know. Being no, a loner? And, no, no, I wouldn't okay. call Nadal a loner at all. Nadal's a very, like, kind of popular guy in the room, and people get along with him well, even if he does have weirdnesses and idiosyncrasies and tics and all those sort of things. I think... He's not. I. I don't know. If there's any honestly anyone really I can compare to Tsitsipas, which is sort of what I find him so fascinating that he's this sort of breed of tennis player I've never really seen before in terms of personality. Um, he's something. He's bringing a new sort of equation to the table. I, I think that's totally fair. Um, you know, again, in, in terms of the tier three guys, I have a total of seven. Um, we talked about Andre Rublev and Taylor Fritz already, so we can or uh, Fritz a little bit, so we can cross them off. How many? How many tier three guys do you have? I have also seven. Um, mentioned Medvedev and Kyrgios before, and Chung is one of my tier three years. We talked about him also. Where do you have Kyle Edmund in this tier? He's tier three, um, and not like you know, I I don't know with Kyle Edmund. He seems. He he doesn't nothing about him really necessarily resonates with me per se. Not even the hair. Very, well, the hair and the general paleness I find just goes straight <laughs> to my heart. I mean that's 
as someone who you know burns at, at the sight of a desk lamp i, I found that very <laughs> um very endearing and uh and that whole thing but and and i you know and he's obviously been being a ginger in England is a whole different set of uh, difficulties he's overcome because they are obviously they always ridicule him, especially over there. Um, but he, you know, there's nothing in his game that I see that excites me per se. He's just he's sort of this kind of um, workmanlike, steady, prof- very professional player who doesn't do anything that I find especially memorable, which makes him sort of tough in this sort of categorization thing. Like he's steadily improving, and he up until building up to that Australian Open semifinal, which was probably, which was definitely ahead of schedule for him. Um, but I don't know. I just don't see necessarily the real big upside, you know, reason to put him higher. I think, I think three is right about where he belongs. Perennial top 20 or for sure can get into top 10, can make a couple of slam quarterfinals overall, but I don't see him being somebody I mean, we're going to see in too many finals. And he, you know, he made this year's Australian Open semifinal, third round at the French Open, makes six ATP quarterfinals, two semifinals, one final, and wins the European Open. Yeah, again, these tiers are a little arbitrary. The reason I have him in tier three below those other guys, the backhand is always going to be a concern. You know, it's he's a better Stevie Johnson, and that's not to say his backhand is as limited and he only has to slice, but you can just tell he's not comfortable from that side. He loves running around that, playing inside-out, inside-out, inside-in forehand as his combo, and, you know, you look at the guys above him, and they can just they can take that away from him. They can attack that backhand side for him. If you can get into his backhand, you have... I mean, not to say he can't obviously beat players who do that. Everyone's trying to do that against him. But there's a discernible weakness, and for me, that's what separates him from the guys above him. And that's fair. That makes sense to me, yeah. yeah. All right, so then moving on to another guy. I had Fritz in this category. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he's moves up from 104 to number 49 now, now on the year. We saw him make that breakthrough, I believe, two years ago when he makes that final in Memphis. Then, next, you know, the next year he doesn't play the clay season. This year he gets a full year on tour. He goes 37 and 22, but that record's a little bit buffered by the fact that he played a bunch of events on the Challenger Tour early on in the year. Still, you know, he is, for me, and we'll talk about this at the end, one of the last things I want to ask is, your top 10 American lists at the end of the 2019 season. Um, But why I have him in this tier and not one above one, he's not an elite athlete. I'm sorry. He's just never going to be the best mover on the court. And two, he's continued to improve. I'm sure he's significantly better at it than I am, but you can never convince me that Taylor Fritz will be a comfortable player at the net at some point in his career. He just, he doesn't look comfortable there at all. The volleys are clearly something He's going to have to continue to work on. No, that's fair, and I, I wouldn't expect you to compare in any category to any of the people we've talked about today. But, um, but I think that yeah, Fritz to me, I just see something about him that just seems solid. I, I, I don't know. I, I see him almost as being maybe he's the Burditch in this list for me. That he's somebody who, if everything goes right, he just has this really. I, I called him Dimitrov earlier, so he's somebody. But you know, he's somebody who's just sort of he's a really good quarter finalist you know, type player. He's a really good player to not necessarily, and we'll have a tough time maybe breaking through up above. And this is all extrapolating way into the unknown. Who knows? He could definitely prove me wrong on the upside or downside of this. But I, I just think he's like a really reliable player. And the player who obviously gets paired with the most and generationally compared to is Tiafo. And Tiafo is just a much more, the, the it's a much more high risk, high reward thing with Tiafo. I completely agree with you. I have Tiafo two spots lower in this tier. Yeah, I think Tiafo. I think the upside, his best is better, and just his, but his worst is way worse than Fritz's possible worst. And um, yeah, I think that it can be. Uh, I, I think I just think Fritz is it's solid, and it's on the lower end of two, maybe top end of three for me. Sure, and then you know on the Tiafo front, wins Delray Beach. Beats Del Potro, beats Chung, beats Shapovalov, beats Edmund, you know, beats Rayonich, Manorino at the U.S. Open, uh, makes another final in Estoril. Not too many ATP quarterfinals, but round of 16 at Indian Wells and Toronto, makes a Wimbledon third round. I mean, he's certainly exciting. If there was a male Aga Radwanska, it probably would look a little <laughs> like Tiafo. 
Um, but I, I just the hitch you serve into his forehand, you're getting a slice back, and you're going to get to attack, and that's a problem. Yeah, the forehand is a big issue for me, and just in terms of that you talk about weaknesses, I mean, Tiafo has made it work better than you. I would, and I'm obviously not a coach. I'm not a you know stroke master at all, but just watch, just purely eye test. The shots don't look like they're going to hold up under pressure. And that's something that I, you know, heard from, I think, Billie Jean King really early on. Just, like, watching juniors, like, in, in, or even, you know, developing players. Like, if they do something that kind of they get away with but looks weird, they won't get away with it necessarily when, like, the crunch time comes. Like, those sort of breakdowns will come when it matters most. When the stroke just doesn't hold up completely. And that's what I kind of fear with Tiafo's forehand. I mean, you could even see it at the year-end finals. All of those guys knew to serve into the Tiafo forehand, and it's a concern. It just is. And, you know, he goes 20-26 and 26 this year. Again, he's he's now solidly inside the top 50, which is good. Um, but if you're asking me who ends 2019 ranked higher, I would take Fritz, and that's why I have him a little bit higher on this list. Um, we talked about Andre Rublev, but my last two guys in this tier who we haven't mentioned – uh, I, I want to start with Nicholas Jerry because I think mm-hmm. Nicholas Jerry is just Kyle Edmund light. Oh, I'm not sure. About that. I mean, that hmm. that's not a comparison I would have ever come up with. But okay. the forehands, explain, the serves, it it looks similar. I, I mean, maybe that's what it is stylistically. But I just think the way they both. See, I mean, first of all, Jerry can crank a serve. Um, and yeah, he's got a much he, bigger serve than Kyle, I feel like. That's true. But the, the way they both, I guess, go after the forehand, the both, they, they both really seek to protect that backhand, even though okay. I think both of their backhands aren't horrible. They're, you know, they're fine. Um, but the, both the way they just really try and protect that side and go after the forehand and use that to move their opponents around the court. Okay. And okay. so, yeah, I just think you saw the way Jerry beat Chilich. You saw the way, you know, Jerry this year, he has wins over... Uh, Chilich, Mishka Zverev, Dominic Team, Verdasco, uh, Ramos Vinoles. You know, not not many crazy wins other than that Chilich and Team, but still, he showed a level to me. You know, getting wins like that, I took notice, and that's why I think you had to include him in this tier. Yeah, no, he's in my tier three also for sure. Yeah, um, the, just the way he cruised earlier this year in South America had a great run of events there. It was a, another one of those stretches, like like Chung, where it makes you take notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that works for me. Yeah, awesome. Well, then my last guy in this tier, and again, if I'm missing anyone, feel free to fill me in after. But I had Michael Moe in this tier of players. He was the last young American I wanted to include. You know, right now he's ranked number one hundred three. He popped into the top one hundred for a brief second a couple weeks ago. Uh, he ends the year thirty six and nineteen, back to back challenger titles in Columbus and Tiburon. Makes two ATP quarterfinals on the year in Brisbane and Los Cabos. Uh, got to play two main draws at Slams. Made the Miami round of thirty two, where he knocked out Fognini. Just physically, to me. Mo is still so in, it's so intriguing that I, I just I would have felt wrong if I left him off of this tier. Yeah, no, he's an unreal athlete for sure, and and someone with a lot of, um, you know, every, he's kind of like Fritz, but with all the athleticism and not quite as much of the steadiness. With Mo, who's also in that same generation, I just honestly haven't seen. I didn't watch a lot of the challengers this fall, and I haven't seen that much of him. Like I feel like he's always good when I'm looking. But then he's not improving when I'm not looking, if that makes any sense. Like, like he's just not, you know, he hasn't, based on how relatively impressed I've been with him, when I have seen him, he doesn't seem to be progressing at the rate that I would think. And not that he's, he's still very, very young, um, and I'm definitely not, you know, writing him off at all. But I just, I haven't been totally convinced that he's a uh, surefire, you know, can't-miss type prospect. I think that he... It from what I, from my very limited information on him seems to be relatively hot and cold. And he did. I watched him in Brisbane when he made the quarters there, and he got a good win over Misha Zverev. And and he, you know, he he acts like he belongs there. He like he was one of the most nonchalant people I've ever seen after winning their first tour level win in Brisbane last year or this year. Uh, he was just you know seemed or maybe I don't know if it was an act or if it was genuine that he just seemed like unimpressed with with the event considering it was a breakthrough and usually that's a really meaningful moment for every guy and girl in their career getting their first tour level win um i don't know I, i'm not I, i'm still i'm undecided on, on mo I, I haven't really figured him out yet well for me i i got a chance to watch a lot of him at the end of the year on the challenger circuit and 
the the most uh, impressive thing for me and the most intriguing is the way he's always had a rocket of a serve, but he seemed to be embracing the serve and volley, trying to move forward more. And initially, you know, he was not a good volleyer, but I have seen jumps. I've seen improvements in his recent form to where with his sort of weapons, the the way he can hit the serve physically, the way he can just track down anything, he's never out of a point. You know, those are characteristics that are rare amongst tennis players, and so I had to include him on this tier. I also think it's interesting, Michael Mogai, whose dad was a professional, but you talk about Zverev, who's got an older brother as a professional. I believe both Shapovalov and Tsitsipas have parents who are coaches. A lot of these young guys mm-hmm. have you know family who have been involved in the game, and so like you mentioned with Michael Mo. He, he seems ready for the big stage. A lot of these guys seems prepared, they seem prepared to handle uh, these events. They don't seem as overwhelmed. They don't seem as starstruck. And I think that's why we've seen so many of them make jumps uh, during this 2018 season. You know, this is the last guy in my tier three, but just uh, another stat right now, 10 of the guys in the top 50 are under the age of 23. So, you know, that's 20%. You can see a clear mm-hmm. shift occurring and it's why, for me, I'm so excited about this, the you know the many young talents on tour. Are there any other tier three guys? You know, I'm missing Ben. Yeah. So one one quick thing before I forget on Mo, I'm not sure that I agree that Mo has big stage experience or big stage testedness at all. I'm not. I can't remember him being on any really big stages. I mean himself. I mean, he did have a father who played, but his father wasn't either on actually. That I want to say he made a Wimbledon Junior semis, and I know that's not a professional level, but I still, you know, it's something. Mm-hmm. It's where he was a top five junior. He's played at all of the Slam sites before, and you're, yeah, you're he's right. been around. He, I just, I just compared to the others in his generation, even like a Kozlov. I don't think he has had that kind of the big time looks quite yet. Anyway. Um, so I do have two more guys in tier two who you've not named, who I guess are probably in your tier four, tier list, whatever. Um, Jaume Munyar, I think, is a good sort of solid token clay quarter to have in the mix here. Um, you know, I think every sort of generation needs one, and maybe this generation's unspectacularly but solid uh, version of like a Carreño Busta. Uh, I think Munyar can be that guy. I think I was very impressed with him beating Ferrer at the French Open this year in five sets, which is not the kind of win you think someone's going to get in their first slam match, beating a veteran countryman who's made a final of that tournament before, even if Ferrer had a pretty lousy 2018. That was a stunning win. I watched a lot of him play in the round before that against my guy, Ducky Lee, um, and that was a very tight final round qualifying match. And for Munyar to do that and then kind of solidly build himself into a Milan qualifier this year, I thought was really impressive. So I think he can be somebody who's going to hang around the top 20 a bit and be in that sort of rank. And the other one I have is Nishioka. Oh, um, you, we should mention Yoshihito Nishioka got the chance to meet up yeah. with him at the Still Mountain Lodge Classic. I, I completely oh, nice. agree with you. So happy to see his progress. The guy, you know, him and Munar are in my tier four right on the outside of these guys, guys who I think will be in the top 50 for the next 10 years. Uh, I, I agree. There's Other than his size, there's not much to dislike about yeah. Nishioka. But, I mean, like, the size is obviously a challenge, but he's overcome it. And you will see guys, when we're talking about being a top 20 player in this sort of tier for me, or that's my understanding of this tier, like, there are Nishikoris, there are Schwartzmans, like, Ferrer. Like, you can do it. Like, you might not have this, the the ceiling might be lower in terms of what you can do, and maybe you can't break through totally. But he'll absolutely, you know, battle and compete incredibly well. He had a really bad knee injury that he came back from really well and didn't seem to really lose any speed, impressively, from that pretty bad ACL tear he had. I think it was ACL. Um, yeah, he, he's somebody who I, who I have a lot of faith in and, and definitely think will be in the mix in that same sort of DMNR category, which is pretty underserved in this generation. I think there's going to be room for defenders, especially if the game and the conditions do trend continually towards slower. I think it does help uh, Nishioka, for sure. Uh, I, I want to say about that defensive point, for me in Tier 4, I have Munar, Tommy Paul, Miomir Kasmenovic, Nishioka... Uh, guys who I think will be known for their ability to play defense, guys uh, who are just physically gifted, able to move around the court so well. So I agree with you. That will make a nice contrast. As I mentioned, my tier four, these are guys I had just on the outskirts. Um, I have eight guys in this category. 
Uh, you talked about Munar already. I have Tommy Paul, Kesmenovich, Tanasi Kokonakis, who obviously knocked out Federer earlier this year, uh, but has just struggled with injuries throughout his entire career. Uh, Nishioka, Hubert Herkatch, who we got to see at the Next Gen Finals. Jared Donaldson, who also struggled with injuries. And then my guy, Stefan Kozlov, who I'm not willing to give up on yet. Are there any names I'm missing? Any final guys you want to mention? Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure there are, but like this was a pretty good good look at the sort of some of the more and some of the less obvious people. Kozlov has been, I mean, I, I adore Stefan Kozlov and, and love his game and love watching him at juniors and just all the variety he had. His 2018 was rough. I mean, I, I, I hope that he can sort of get his head back together and get his game back in place because he seems to be drifting a lot um, from where his potential can be. Um, and, and he's somebody who struggled, I think, openly with a lot of uh, belief over time as he's seen other people in his junior cohort break through and he's struggled to and still hasn't made top 100. Still, I don't think it's gotten to play a slam main draw yet. Uh, so that has to be tough for him. But I, I hope that he can, can keep get another win at some point in him because he's got such an awesome game and could be a huge, a hugely popular player and a hugely fun player uh, if he gets to put it together. Uh, I've been anti-Babalot for a long time. I don't like that he switched to it. I'm ready for him to switch back to the head racket. Um, you know, that's just a subjective thing. I agree with you. I, I think it would be better, you know, tennis would be a better place if Stefan Kozlov succeeds. Uh, but yeah, there there are so many talented young players out there. And again, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, talk about them. I want to do two more things uh, before we let you go, if that's all right. Um, on the topic of Stefan Kozlov and, you know, the many American talents, you look at the top Americans this year, there are 11 Americans at the end of the year who are in the top 100. Those guys are John Isner, Steve Johnson, Francis Tiafo, Taylor Fritz, Sam Query, Tennis Sandgren, Ryan Harrison, Dennis Kudla, Bradley Klon, Mackenzie McDonald, and then Riley Opelka at number 100. We also have three guys ranked 103, 107, and 111. That's Michael Moe, Jack Sock, and Jared Donaldson. Um, my last big question to you, Ben, looking towards the 2019 season, I have projected thus far that I think 16 guys could end the year in the top 100. Um, do you think that is at all a possibility for the American tennis fans out there? Uh, it's on the upside of possible. I, I think that, you know, there's some guys who are still need to sort of prove they can hang in there, who did make top 100 debuts or re-debuts this year. Uh, players like Sangren, players like Kudla, Klon, McDonald, Harrison even. I, I think that they've been up and down. And to assume they're just going to stay in there because they got in there this year is maybe a bit on the optimistic side. Assume they'll all stay in there. Um, I would imagine you know some of those guys have had ups and downs before and might fall back out. And, and I did my list, and I have at least one guy who I think is out of the top 100 now who I could see kind of getting back in uh, next year. But... It's, inter- it's it's tough to know. I mean, I, I think that uh, things change. And, and I've done these U.S. top 10 lists a bunch before. Ricky Diamond used to do them all the time every year. And they are they are hard. And it just takes, like, one person to in either direction to completely screw them up. Uh, famously, I mean, like, Marty Fish finished American number one one year and then, like, barely played the next year, I think. Or no, maybe it was no, no, two years later. Anyway, and then Brian Baker got hurt in Australia and completely mess up the list one year too and i mean it's just like it's a this is a very tough one to get an actually like respectable looking list at year end deceptive deceptively very hard no well i reserve the right to ask you for your list um at some point before the 2019 season starts no i i i I wrote it i was ready to go i have a list oh let's hear it actually can can we alternate let's let's start with number one that way there's a little there's a little fun okay i see your list i can see your list um i think (laughs) That you know, we we agree on number one and number two, um, Isner so Fritz. We, we both have Isner Fritz one and two, I and agree. I just think Isner's got such a big lead. It's it's hard to it's it's tough not to pick him, and Fritz. I like I've said putting Fritz higher than you did too. I I, I think a lot of Fritz and think that he's gonna steadily progress pretty far. Uh, my number three is different than yours. My number three is Sam Query. Interesting. So you see a Sam bounce back in 2019? Yeah, I think so. I think he's. Probably not as good a player as he showed in 2017, but a much better, much better player than he showed in 2018. Um, and just like his game is solid, he should be making third and fourth rounds of slams pretty steadily, and that should be maybe winning a 250 or two, and that should be plenty. To so get to number three. I, 
I have Query at number eight. I project him to end around number fifty-eight on the year. No statistics behind that; just an arbitrary number. Um, he's around fifty-one this year, so that would mean maintaining that level. I, I don't know. It's not so much that I think he's going to decline. I just think other guys are ready to jump him. I think his stronghold, you know, Isner hasn't fallen off yet, and that lead is still a little bit too big, but. Uh, it's a lot of points for Query to make up now, given how, you know, he's currently the fifth-ranked American. He's behind Tiafo, Fritz, and Johnson. I don't see him jumping any of them next year. And then I, I you know, I think Opelka makes a jump. And that's actually, you know, in terms of number four, I have Steve Johnson. Um, number three, I, ha- I have Tiafo, 28. Yeah. So I our, our four and fives are the same. I have Query three, Johnson four, Opelka five. Interesting. Um, so we both so like it, the Opelka jump. If I tell you that Riley yeah. Opelka ends 2019 ranked ahead of Jack Sock, you think that's a logical take? Sock is the one person I had no idea what to do with on this list. <laughs> I mean, because, like, seriously, because he's, he's he finished one year number eight and one year number 108, which is the difference between being first and off this top ten list. So <laughs> I don't know with Jack. I really don't. Like, I, I don't know what his motivation will be for singles. I, it wasn't clear what it was throughout this year. I mean, he's an unbelievably talented player, like what he was able to do. He's the best doubles player in the world, I think, full stop. I think he's just awesome at that. And in singles, like you sort of say with Tia, with Francis, like he's been exposed in singles, and people know how to play him in singles right now. They know how to pick on his backhand and know how to get results, and that's a tough thing to overcome. Even if he did compete, I think, really well uh, in the fall. And he wasn't playing well, but he competed well in singles in the fall. And that's a, that's a welcome uh, return for him there. Um, he did an incredible job salvaging his racket, just uh, ranking rather, just by having an unbelievably lucky draw in Paris, getting a bye somehow after winning seven matches this year, and then getting uh, and then getting Gasquet and then lucky loser Jaziri, um, which all of which was enough to get him the Australian Open wild card, which I would be <laughs> seething if I was one of the players playing the the challengers that the guy winning two matches in Paris was enough to get the wild card. Um, when they're all out there grinding. Uh, so Sock, I don't know what to do with. I, I kind of just want to leave him off, but I have him tentatively at number six, uh, just because I think that's sort of like middle of the road. Like, I don't know. It's a safe sort of, because he could, he could be back to number two in theory. Like it, it wouldn't make, that wouldn't be, you know, shocking per se either if he kind of gets back to being a top 30 type player, but maybe he won't. No, I hedged my bet. I have him at number nine. You know, right now he ends the year at number 13. I think next year he does climb back into that top 70, top 60 range. But the beginning of the year for him is going to suck. It is not going to be fun to be Jack Sock to have to play so many qualifying events. Maybe it'll be good for his game, but I don't think he's going to like it, especially because, as you mentioned, he's been top 10 before. Um, For me, number six. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say with Sock, getting into Australian Open main draw was so huge for him. Like, I mean, because he would have had uh, to play everything. Australia. He was, it was everything. And, like, honestly, and if he makes third or fourth round there, which is very optimistic, he can avoid a lot of qualities. Like, he can make his year, and he has that whole cache of Paris points waiting for him again at the end of the year as a nice sort of safety net. And the amazing thing about his 2017 is he kept getting great draws and losing. Like, he wasn't getting hard draws. He was seated all the time. He was getting pretty reasonable draws even with that and wasn't making the most of them. If he if he has to play a lot of seeds early on and starts, you know, has to play like a Djokovic first round in Australia, like, yeah, that would be not fun for him. Um, but if he gets any kind of room to work with, I think he can pounce and get himself back into a comfortable territory quickly. Unless, and that's, that's the positive glass half full sock take. The other half is that he, like I said, he's been exposed as being a one-dimensional player and the book is out on him, and, and he'll give up, and he'll just kind of focus on doubles. And although with with, with I don't even know if he's going to play doubles at Australia with, <laughs> with with Mike with Bob and Mike theoretically coming back together. I don't know who he's playing with. So two quick things off of that, and then we can move on. And again, we want to be conscious of your time. I promised you thirty five minutes, and I think we're at an hour thirty five minutes. So uh-huh. things worked out perfectly. Um, but for Jack Sock, yeah, tangent number one would be I believe in the tennis gods, and if there are a tennis gods and they show themselves in response for him getting that Australian wild, uh, wild Australian Open wild card, stealing that from the younger players, he is going to draw a Djokovic first round. That's the only way that makes sense. Um, I also think moving forward, if I'm the Bryans, they're not getting any younger. I say for them, they have joint custody of Jack. They alternate playing every big <laughs> event with him, and that 
that way they maintain their bodies and they're able to play till 2035. The Brian still being around is, is amazing. I mean, they were talking about retirement very openly years ago. And I mean, and they, Mike Bryan essentially at the French Open this year, after he lost first round of San Query, was like, well, that's it for me. It's been great, guys. I'll see you when I see you. And then, like, we thought he like he thought he was retiring on the spot. He like was talking as if he was saying his goodbyes from tennis. And then three, four weeks later, he wins Wimbledon with Jack Sock. And so who knows with them? I I, I have no forecast on the Bryans whatsoever. Um, But Mike still really wants to be out there. And Bob is working to get back with him. So uh, we'll see how they do. It's their year was rough because they had such a great start to the year before Bob got hurt. Um, Jack was yeah the perfect, perfect understudy there. No, I, I mean, they're just them and Fed. It's a constant jockey to see who's going to retire first. It's truly incredible. Um, yeah, it's something to watch. But uh, all right, let's 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 get back to the list real quickly. So, again, I have McDonald at six. I believe you said you had Jack Sock. Number seven, yeah. I have Ryan Harrison. I don't know. Uh, six, I have Mackie McDonald, I should say. But seven, I have Ryan Harrison as well. I think those are two guys. I think Mackie... <laughs> I, I love Mackie's game. I it, I have a sweet spot for it. I just love the yeah. way he plays. I have Mackie at eight. I have Tiafo at seven. Um, Tiafo at seven. He's number three right now. That that's a drop for him. Yeah, no, I I think it is. I mean, I think that like I said with Tiafo, like there's risk and reward, and with Tiafo and Sock, both of them, like, I don't know. I mean, like both of them could be. I could see Tiafo slipping out of the top hundred this year. I could see him just kind of having a streak of bad luck. I think he's a very streaky or bad form. Or whatever i think he's a very very streaky player and i could see him you know like i said falling out of the top 100 or i could see him getting top 30 i think there's just a lot of like volatility with that with that stock no i absolutely agree i think that's why i'm high on guys like Mackey and ryan harrison who Mackey can get a little streaky for sure but i i just i like the floor for him and harrison for me number eight you know we talked about him already i have sam query i just think he's going to maintain his form from this year not dip or rise too hot much higher in the rankings what about you who's number eight uh my number eight is mcdonald okay Um, that's fair yeah my number nine is tennis sangren who's got a very who's got who's got a very front-loaded uh he's he's so he doesn't even realize how he is i think he realizes it no i think i think when you're a guy like Sangren, who know who's never defended points like that, like and knows that it kind of had this magical run, and it's probably been on his mind a lot. But he made he made third round of the U.S. Open, right? So he's like he's had a couple like kind. That's like a, that would have felt really big to him. They could win a couple matches at a Grand Slam again, like just to sort of put a bit of safety net. But yeah, he's already. I'm guessing if he is um, loses like first round in Melbourne, he'll fall out of top hundred. But I think he's enough time to get it back, and I just really liked his game. Although he did play with his coach, uh, Jim Madrigal, I've heard. He's now working with Madison Keys, I want to say. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I heard, I heard about that. Um, and, yeah, so I, that could be tough for, for Sanger. I'm not sure who Sanger's working with. I haven't talked to him. But um, I think that he is a I, – I, I think his game is really solid. I think he has maybe the best backhand in American men's tennis. I, I, I think that he has just a lot of sort of solid kind of – like I think he's like the way you described Harrison and McDonald's is kind of the way I feel about Sandgren game wise. I think it's just really solid, not necessarily spectacular, but I, I think he's going to hang around in this sort of. I have him at ninth. So Taylor yeah. Fritz has the best backhand of all of the Americans, in my opinion. But I, I can see why you like the Sandgren. I have Jack Sock at nine. We've talked about him enough. Um, I and sorry by the way, that was very matter of fact. I would say. It goes Fritz number one, Kudla number two. Among I love their backhands; those are my mm. oh, the Kudla backhand is beautiful. But for me, my number ten guy, I Jared Donaldson. I think we're going to see a bounce back year from him next year. I think again, oh. the things he does well, the serve, the forehand, outweighs some of his weaker things. In fact, not the best volley or not the best mover. I think this serve and forehand gives you the upside of a top seventy-five player, which is where I think he cracks back into, and that'll be enough for him to be number ten on this list. So, admittedly, I just completely forgot about Jared Donaldson making my list. So I. He might have been in here somewhere at some point. And <laughs> I don't know what his health is like. I don't know what his injury comeback is looking like. But I was just really excited to get to put my number 10, who you, was not even in your top 16, as this will be like kind of the the comeback we've all waited for uh, from Tim Smichek. 
um, who I think, you know, why not? Number yeah. 10. Got to have some fun with it. No, that is... <laughs> that's a good pick. I like. I mean, that is not what it's I It's a expected. pick. I don't know if it's a good pick, but it's my pick. <laughs> oh, I expected you to say, like, Will Blumberg. Yeah, like, that's, that's oh, no, I'm not going, going that wild. No. <laughs> but, um, but, no, I think that... I think some, I, I, some older guys in here... I mean, like, the thing... When I had experience doing this list with Ricky every year, like Rajiv Ram always made it into the top 10 every year. We never picked him. And so I was always <laughs> like, he was somebody who like, I've kind of learned that you should look to somebody who can be in that. And, and Smeechek being it probably assumes that this is not somebody top 75. Like I'm not sort of, my list is not buying into your 16 Americans top 100 type outlook. That's um, fair. I think that, I think that Smeechek might be top 10. Somewhere in the 90s, 80s, 90s for him, uh, if he has a good year. And and he could be in there with Kudla. I think Kudla's another sort of – I think – I know he's your number 11. I think he could be uh, in the mix too, but he's been very up and down. I left Harrison off my list. I think Harrison um, is sort of, again, due, I, due for another up and down type year. He has a lot of points to defend early also. I mean, he made a Brisbane final. Um, I feel like the rest of his beginning of his year is pretty good too. I don't remember him doing much second half at all. Um, so he could have a trickier year. Uh, yeah, I don't. It's a lot of guesswork, and and there's not much. I'm just. I wanted to make a couple interesting picks in there, um, rather than go purely percentage. I was gonna say that's half the fun. That's why we make these yeah. lists. Well, then I want to do one more thing, and then I swear we will let you go. This is something we do on our Cracked Interviews podcast. It is a rapid fire series of questions. I want to ask you uh, just a couple things. Let our listeners, you know, get to know you a little bit more if they don't already by the end of this hour and a half. Um, you know, ask some fun ones of you. I'm, I think you'll enjoy some of these questions, but give us uh, the answer that comes off on the top of your head. And Dalton, if you're still here, I'd, you know, we can alternate questions as well. Yeah, let's uh, let's alternate back and forth if that works. All right, I'm ready. All right, let's do it. Well, then I'm going to start with this. The fav- your favorite match you watched in 2018. Oh, um, my favorite match I watched in 2018 was a women's match. It was Halep and Lauren Davis. Um, that match was nuts. It was like 15, 13 in the third. Um, and the quality was, and unlike, um, other long matches that, you know, I've experienced in my life, like Isner, <laughs> Isner versus pretty much anybody. Um, I, uh, it was like a non, it was like two tiny people playing this kind of match. And that was just cool. And, like, the amount of, like, amount of fight, and it was really good. I think Australia was the best slam of the year, for sure, for the women. Um, so there were some absolutely sick matches in the top half of that women's draw. And that's the one that sticks with me the most. Um, men's, the obvious pick is Djokovic and all Wimbledon. Um, but that's, like, almost too obvious. No, that's a it. bad pick. That's a bad pick. I don't mind that pick. Hatchnov, Hatchnov Nadal U.S. Open was just the highest of qualities. Sorry, physically just incredible. Okay, okay. What are we even talking about right now? Um, favorite tennis video game, and Ben, you can include apps on this one. I may or may not have seen your Twitter. Oh today. man, okay. So I I really like tennis video games a lot. I don't play. I don't have a lot of video game consoles, so my experience is pretty limited. I played so much uh, Mario Tennis N sixty four growing up. Um, just like shout in, out insane out. amounts of that game. I love that game. Um, I actually played it with uh, Joey Hamp. Uh, a few years ago at U.S. Open, I brought my console up to New York. And we played and like periscoped our our playing and had some pretty intense throwdowns, which I'm proud to say I think I won the first two matches of anyway. Um, Who's your character three. of choice? Um, so my favorite character, even though it doesn't really work well in like playing against other people, I was always a Toad person. Um, I really like Toad because <laughs> Toad is so is so um, short and can take the ball so early. Like, with Toad, you can basically hit the ball, like, a millisecond after it bounces <laughs> and just, like, run up and get the ball that way, and it's great. I mean, one, of, I mean, Joey plays as Baby Mario, um, which has the advantage of, you know, being able to hit an overhead smash off almost any forehand because he's so short that his overhead is so low, and that can be pretty lethal. Um, so wait, those, wait, so but, with Toad, do you do the traditional right-handy, or do you switch it up and do left? Oh, I go right-handed. I don't, I, actually, I don't do any of the characters lefty. That would, that would just confuse my brain. Um, but I, not that there's a big difference in Mario Tennis between in that version between forehands and backhands. I think kind of just look like the same shot, honestly. Um, but, but yeah, um, that's all the serve maybe would be, it would make some differences, but, um, yeah, so that's, that's my main one. I play a lot of tennis elbow for PC. Um, I don't know if you played that game, but that game is great. It's, I think the most realistic simulation of the tours. 
there's been um, waiting. There's supposed to be a new version of it, like a fully new version in 2019. They're still sort of milking the 2013 version, which is like kind of patches since then. And it's great. I've played hours and hours of that game. I play that game in tennis press rooms and people stare at me like, what are you doing? Like playing a tennis video game while you're watching a tennis match uh, live. Like this is, this is too much. You need, you need help. Um, so that's a big one for me. And then, yeah, I just got this app like a couple of days ago called um, World of Tennis Roaring Twenties, which is just kind of, which is this really cool idea, like having a game that's modeled off of what tennis looked like in the sort of 1920s, which is, you know, just doing research and things I've read a lot about recently or read more about than I ever had before about tennis in that era and sort of how it became the more popular game with Bill Tilden, Suzanne Lunglon and all this sort of you know, social scene on the French Riviera that brought tennis to its current popularity. Um, and this game sort of mimics all of that, you know, the players in like long pants and sweaters and it's, just, it's cool looking and sort of, sort of elegant backdrops. It's a, I'd recommend it. Um, the, the gameplay is interesting. It's sort of like right now I find myself like, I don't know if it's supposed to be 1920s ish or if just like my character hasn't been like boosted enough to be able to actually hit the ball, but I like have to like run in and hit like drop half volleys on every point to succeed. So that's kind of fun. Um, so it makes it kind of a more whimsical. <laughs> I've only seen the graphics that you shared, but it looked pretty sweet. Yeah, I think it's cool. I I, I, rec- I, I saw a couple of people who like from that tweet like started it and liked it. So I would say give it a shot. Um, yeah, that's not. I should have been like paid to sponsor that, but I just like generally thought this game was cool. And it's just I you never I hadn't seen. I mean, in general, video games, and I'm not a video game expert by any stretch, but there's like kind of been a trend towards nostalgia type design. You know, like Fallout or whatever else, like sort of 50s ish type things, or all these various you know, games set in various past eras. And this was the first one I'd seen definitely for tennis and maybe for any sport at all, period, sort of bring that aesthetic to a sports game. And I thought it was a pretty cool idea. No, absolutely. And I'll say this, don't play Topspin because Topspin sucks. Terrible game. Um, I got to say, there have been a couple of really crappy tennis games that come out lately. Like the, I forget, I don't know if Topspin was the one that came out this year or what was the one that came out at the French Open? Oh, I, um, I I don't know the name, but I know the one you're talking about as well. And also, the Australian Open game was also crap. I played that <laughs> at a demo they had at the Australian Open. It was so bad. Like the players just like the players looked like they looked pretty good. They had like they got the licensing from their apparel makers, so they had like the actual real designs of the players. Uh, 2017, I guess French Open out. Uh, sorry, Australian Open outfits. So that was like the most realistic looking game on that sense that I'd seen. But like the gameplay itself was really bad. Like the characters couldn't really move. It was very jerky and not fluid and just stunk so um yeah yeah i i agree well then on that note you know um people as dalton mentioned you just tweeted out uh, about this video game and you have quite the twitter following over sixty-six thousand followers and for those who want to follow you that's at ben rothenberg um but i want to ask on a fun note you know you're not shy about sharing your opinion on twitter what is the mm-hmm. favorite Twitter beef you've ever gotten into over <laughs> tennis? Oh, favorite. Um, I don't. I mean, I really don't like. It might seem like I'm looking for beefs, and it probably, I probably subconsciously, I guess, am because I do them so much. But like, I am <laughs> trying to get along with people. Like, I, I, my, I guess the 2019 New Year's resolution is when Nick Kyrgios pops up in my mentions yet again to just try to ignore it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Um, favorite beef. I don't know. That's probably better for an outsider to pick. Like, they're not necessarily. They're just, they're, just, they're just kind of like they're more stressful for me than anything. When I realize, like, oh, this is happening again. Great. Um, but I'm I'm sure people from the outside have their favorite or least favorite of my of my Twitter moments. Well, we'll have to do a poll after that. Maybe maybe later on tonight or tomorrow. What is your favorite thing to piss Ben Rothenberg off about? Maybe it's yeah. Yeah. Maybe what, what do people get more angry with you about the three out of five versus two out of three, or more angry when the Steelers lose and they confuse you for Roethlisberger? It's definitely the the former. The people get so mad about the best <laughs> of three thing. They get so so mad and so indignant. And I will throw you know, Brad Gilbert in this group. Like I mean, people just like feel like you're just attacking the soul of the sport in this way that I just don't think is true. I just, I really, I want, I really want for some slam just like once to try it. Just like first week, (laughs) 
I don't. I, the tennis traditionalists aren't going to let that happen, Ben. You and I both. I think, that. but I think the tide is shifting. <laughs> I really do think this is something that, like, because I was early on this on this one, and I feel like people are sort of coming around slowly but surely. I mean, like, including players. I've talked to several men's players off record who've said, like, "Yeah, we don't need best of five. This is stupid." Um, yeah, but and, the, the tide shifting in tennis is like, you know, maybe it'll happen decades from now. <laughs> right. I mean, I would I would guess, if I had to guess, I would guess that we will have a slam try the best of three thing, at least partially, before 2026, which is, I mean, that's Ooh. like, I think that's like relatively fast for tennis, which can be glacial for sure. But, sure, uh, sure. but may, I don't know. I, I, I just think, I just think the, I just think it makes so much sense. And just as the game gets more and more physical, like you, if you keep if you keep insisting on quantity, you're going to lose quality. And we've seen so many matches late in slams recently um, that have been derailed by one guy or another being uh, burnt, you know, spent or just hurt. And like both Australian Open semifinals this year was a very stark example. Uh, those both stunk. Uh, there was a waste of a great round of a grand slam, especially in Australia where they're both night sessions, they're separate days. Separate tickets. Those were two back-to-back really bad nights for fans there. At the tournament, that wouldn't have been that way had Edmund and Chung not had to work so and get worn down so much in order to get there. Um, and we've seen that a few other times. Zverev completely, you know, died against Team in in the uh, French Open this year. I can name more. I mean, Anderson Isner, and I think the whole as much as people think of me as this sort of like cliched. Oh, I want every match to be five minutes long. I actually love final long long final sets, which is like evidenced by my pick of Halep Davis being the best match of the year overall. I love when the most dramatic part is extended. What I don't like is having to wait like two hours for the match to feel like it's getting going. And I feel like so often that's what best of five turns into. No, that's fair. Um, I'll move on to a more uh, personal question because I feel like we've been very tennis-centric on the pod. Um, okay. One beverage of choice. It, it it doesn't. It's not any particular time of day. But what's your go-to beverage on a uh, remote um, island? Um, if there's like healthy drinking water on this island, I like. Uh, I have a so <laughs> I, have, I have a soda stream. I use pretty religiously when I'm home, just for like carbonated water. Um, just you know, taking like a bottle full of filtered tap water and just like adding bubbles to it. That just makes my day over and over again. And it's really loud, makes funny noises, it kind of like fart sounds as you do it. So that's great. Um, and so that's my main sort of that, that I see here. Um, otherwise, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I don't I don't have too strong beverage choices. I'm kind of game for almost any category of anything. I don't drink a ton of soda, regular soda anymore. Um, I like grapefruit juice, I guess, which is a little obscure. Uh, you should have said chocolate milk. Chocolate milk is great. Chocolate milk is a really oh, good pick. There you go. Um, <laughs> that's what that was. What we were waiting on there, the, the chocolate milk choice. That that it's, it's chocolate milk is good. No, I, I saw Sloan Stevens got a sponsorship with chocolate milk this year, and I was like, that's I fully endorse that as a thing an athlete should be. Selling. That's when you know you made it right there. Absolutely. No, I was gonna say the reason we at Cracked Rackets don't have sponsorships is because we're holding out for chocolate milk. That's the only reason. Well, call Sloan. She can probably hook you up. <laughs> Exactly. I feel like Mercedes Benz would be a, a close second. Oh, chocolate milk. You're going to say that knowing that my father works for General Motors. Devastating. <laughs> Devastating. Um, but all right, Ben, one last question for you. And again, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on. But as you know, our name is Cracked Rackets. And I have to imagine there's been a time, maybe it was after an article came out and someone wrote you a snarky comment, or maybe there was just a poor result on the court and you went to play some tennis to take out your frustration. But when was the last time Ben Rothenberg cracked a racket? So I've only ever done this once in my life. I mean, I don't actually get to play that much tennis, which is sad because the players, I played high school tennis and not especially well. Um, all All the friends who I played with uh, more or less have all moved out of town from DC where I grew up and I haven't had time during like any anytime there's like decent tennis weather in the year I'm usually like traveling to watch tennis somewhere else and so I don't have a great foundation of home tennis which is frustrating and there are some reporters who will like make big efforts to bring rackets on the road and try to find court time at a grand slam some early morning or something and I just don't have the energy to do that during grand slams honestly like, <laughs> I'm when I'm not on site and I stay on site later than most people 
I'm asleep. Um, mm. So I don't play that much anymore. The only time I ever cracked a racket, I don't even think it was actually even a tennis racket. It might have been like a squash racket or something. Uh, but I had a friend who had like a very slightly broken, uh, like very slightly hairline cracked racket in his apartment. And was like, and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to smash this racket because I've never gotten to before. And it was like in a parking garage or something. I just like smacked it as hard as I could. And it was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I don't have, I don't have that. I mean, it makes total sense for pros who have unlimited supply of more or less free rackets. But for, it's something I'd recommend most people do. I mean, maybe they have. I don't know. Do you guys crack a lot of rackets in your day? <laughs> I have not. I am not nearly strong enough to do that. I would just make a fool out of myself. Uh, See, so, I think that yeah. I think that I would think that I could do it strength wise. I mean, I, I'm actually not. And I've also heard there's huge variations between brands. Like players will tell you that certain rackets and I can't remember off the top of my head, like certain rackets will be like if they see Vavrinka breaking his racket, they'd be like, yeah, well, what? you couldn't do that with, a I don't know, Wilson or something like they have. They have definite like the ones who are the really good analysts of it. Like I'm sure Golbus could give you a great dissertation on like which rackets break the best in different conditions and stuff. But it's not an even playing field totally with that. But I bet the right racket, I think heads are the most breakable I've heard. I bet you could I bet you could break your head easily. Easily. No, absolutely. Well then, Ben, again, thank you so much. I want to give you a chance to plug everything you're up to because I'm sure you're doing plenty this offseason. What should our listeners be on the lookout for? Um, not much in the offseason. I mean, that I'm, I'm working out a couple things that are going to be coming out way, way later. But, I mean, Australian Open, January, we'll have a couple features, hopefully, um that come out uh working on some other longer term projects had an episode of ncr come out yesterday as of when we're recording this so that'll come and we'll do one more ncr episode this year on a sort of remember when like remembering odd things that happened throughout the year like remember you know marco trungaliti that kind of level of things you know like sort of fun random stories that kind of made the year what it was and made the year fun um so that's usually a fun show and so that's about it I, it's hope i've really enjoyed hibernating for the most part since the u.s open have barely traveled the tour and i've done that for the last few years and it's been it's been great having a bit of a fall off so i don't have much to plug um but thank you guys very much for having me so so by just I, and this is the last thing i swear okay. but by hibernation do you mean staycation like are you just like hanging out for the most part yeah the next few weeks more or less i mean like i am i do do other work i mean like do other like writing work and working on stuff so i'm not completely on vacation per se but i do find it way more relaxing to be at home for stretches because that's not something i get that much like i mean like i mentioned with being the like, other 11 months out of the year yeah like i'm gonna be gone all of january in australia um i'll be home for february and then i'm not sure what my march schedule is yet if i'm doing in new Orleans or miami or both or neither kind of want to do acapulco actually um i've never done that i've never done that term that term it seems cool um yeah and then but then like may through like mid late july i'm on the road that whole time like 11 weeks in a row and that's pretty exhausting and then that leads right into the american stretch of washington cincinnati and three weeks in new york and so that's a that's a very long stretch um and so then i just need basically like three months at home to recover and i'm not as not yeah not as young as i once was in terms of turning around these things <laughs> oh well then what i recommend crack open youtube look up murray versus Djokovic australian open semifinals 2012 it's the best highlights you'll find and then you know other oh, is, that, is that your is that your go-to highlights match oh my god if i'm on the bike and i can put my laptop in front of me that's what i'm watching my go my go to highlights match, which is one of my favorite matches of all time, is I don't know if you're familiar with this match um, or the highlight video of it, which is like 25 minutes long or something, is um, it's it's uh, Bernard Tomic versus Alexander Dolgopolov <laughs> that same tournament, which was the first tournament I ever covered in person, actually, um, first Grand Slam, and that match is unbelievably great i don't know if you're familiar with it but it's oh no i i have a rotation it's not quite in my rotation but i will definitely be sure to throw it in i also watched escobedo tiafo from Kerry last year that's another good one but but that's a that's that's a a deep cut i I found recent i recently found um the entire or almost the entire uh smichek nadal match oh another good one uh 2015 2014 whatever year that was uh that entire match is now on YouTube, or maybe everything like maybe like maybe like three games into the first set or something, but almost all of it's on there. 
it's it's a lot of fun um and that's if you want like a longer you know slower burn non-highlights just sink your teeth into a a very weird match that's a good one there's a lot of there's some fun junks definitely check that out the other thing i was gonna say is please the next time you go on a three out of five versus two out of three rant just tag me i want to see the outrage i need to experience that firsthand no just search. you can look at my mentions yourself i mean you can you can find i mean i've searched even just like search like my username on twitter and best of five and what you'll just find plenty of rage of how i'm destroying the sport and so on <laughs> All I know is next time the uh, Correct Records team is in the same city as you were playing Mario Tennis. Oh, Um, absolutely. (laughs) And I'm going to show you that the left-handed version of characters actually matters because those angles actually come into play quite a bit. I look forward to it. I'm always up for learning something new about a game that came out in 1997 or whatever. Uh, That game's a classic, though. I love that you brought that up. It's so good. It's so good. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Well, Ben Rothenberg, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Great Shot Podcast. Uh, and again, anytime you want to come on some hot topic, uh, you're more than welcome to hop uh, to, you right. know, to to join us. So thank you again. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Dalton. Yeah, Take care, Ben.